hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. John Roach is a California-born, Brooklyn-based artist who, in his own words, is most happy when he's jamming things together that don't seem to fit. He works in a variety of media, including sculpture, video, installation, internet collaboration, and sound art. With a playful use of these materials, he sets procedures in motion that are not easily controlled. An example would be viewer-activated robots that create a score for a live musical performance. The fluctuation of internet harnessed to drive a sound composition and many more processes and procedures that produce indeterminate outcomes. Collaboration, and more specifically collaboration across disciplines, is a key component to his work as well. John has had exhibitions and installations worldwide and has also held a number of residencies, including most recently at the New York Art Residency and Studio Foundation, He's won a number of awards for his work and teaching, including the Innovations and Education Award in support of his sound research at the New School in New York City, where he teaches as assistant professor of fine art. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. So I discovered your work through a mutual friend, Craig Dongoski, who's also been on the show, and he he was you were the first person that he recommended. I said, you know, Craig, if you have any... Uh, recommendations on who should be on the show and your name was at the top of the list and as soon as I looked at the your website and what you're up to I was just I was all in and I'm fascinated by your work and what you're doing and I can't wait to uh, to get into it a little bit Um, you you're both like incredibly prolific but also you have this amazing diversity in your work as an artist. I mentioned in the introduction, like in fields of sound and drawing and installation and even, even into performances. Uh, and it seems like each project comes from some sort of unique artistic approach. But also, you know, when I look at the diversity, it, it makes me think that you must be a very curious person. So... What I'd like to do here at the beginning of the show is maybe take us back and give some background, maybe to the genesis of this kind of diverse practice, or maybe the first time you responded creatively to your curiosity, basically wherever you want to take that. Okay, that sounds great. Uh, curious is a good word. I, I would probably label myself as uh, perpetually curious, and it's one of the things, too, that I try to emphasize to my students. I teach at Parsons in the city, in New York City. And, uh, you know, remaining curious is uh, is one of the things that I attempt to do. And I think it is kind of founded to, a some, to some degree on my background and, and where I've come from. And, uh, you know, the I have sort of a motley background. So it is, it's a great idea to kind of go back and, and try to piece all this together, especially since in terms of history, I'm always fascinated uh, with how your history keeps coming back. You know, we, we tend to move continually forward, um, but there's those great moments where you, you see something like an idea or a concept maybe that you played around with 10, 15 years ago suddenly come back. So I'm uh, in preparing for this, uh, this talk, I was just kind of going through you know, looking back at all of the things I've done and where I've come from, and it's one of those great methods to really to begin to sort of reflect on 
where where do some of your propensities come from? So my own history is uh, I grew up in California. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area in Daly City, which is a little sort of part of San Francisco. And um, we lived there till I was about seven years old. And my mom, I think she either likes to uh, blame herself or give herself credit for the fact that my brother and I both became artists because she was really um, great about taking us to every museum in the city. So we would just, uh, you know, we would take off in the morning and we would spend the whole day in the city and going to the De Young Museum and all these other places. So I really grew up um, looking at a lot of art. And, you know, my folks weren't artists, um, but, you know, they, they valued, uh, you know, uh, going out and seeing things in the world. And so um, when I was seven, we moved to Chico, California, which was a very different different place altogether. It's about three and a half hours north of San Francisco. And it's an agricultural community. There's a, a California State University Chico there. So there's some, some things going on. Uh, but it was a really big change for us. And um, when I was there, you know, uh, in high school, it was kind of the, the typical situation where you sort of feel like as an artist, you're not quite fitting in this little community. But I had a lot of friends who, who were into some of the, the crazy music that I was. And we would go to the local record stores and two of them were, one of them was um, Tower Records and the other was uh, Sundance Records. And we would look through the bins and just basically look for anything that looked out of the ordinary. So without even, you know, obviously this is pre-internet and um, anything that looked remotely strange, like, oh, it's from England. Oh, that's an interesting label on the back of that. So we were picking up records by Nurse with Wound and Soviet France and Coil and Faust and Current 93. And, and that sort of started uh, getting me really interested in sound. At, at that point, you know, I had no musical training at all. So the idea of actually working with sound at that point never even crossed my mind. I just like to listen to this stuff. And um, at, also one interesting thing about Chico is, you know, it's, uh, Chico is not the, um, it's not an avant-garde sort of hotbed there, but there was a really interesting college radio station called KCSC, and, uh, they had some really amazing programming, and that was another place where I was really, um, did a lot of listening. So, you know, that was kind of some of the stuff that, that I think laid some of the groundwork for my interest in sound, but, uh, some, in terms of the interdisciplinary work that I ended up doing. One of the things that I uh, I did was out of a certain amount of lethargy, I think. I I didn't leave Chico after I graduated high school, and I, I actually went to school at Chico State for two years, which, you know, at the time I thought, oh boy, I'm going to stay in Chico. Uh, but what ended up happening is I got into this amazing program for my first year. My first year was in a class called... Um, general studies thematic or gst and gst was one class so my my freshman year in college what i took one class and i had you know there were like 20 students or so and six teachers and we basically studied what they called the ascent of man and you looked at it from the perspective of science and literature and art history uh psychology uh politics and 
so any problem that you encountered in this class, you really did look at it from all these different angles. And that was really um, a profound experience. I mean, I was a freshman in college, and I, I don't think it really sunk in the impact that that class had on me until a good 20 years later when I realized, you know, I seem to be really interested in collaborating. I seem to be really interested in doing interdisciplinary work. And really, I think a lot of that had a root in that classroom. Wow, fascinating. So I noticed from your uh, bio that you ended up doing your bachelor's degree in English. Yes, that's true. I actually, um, while I was in Chico, I was double majoring. So I was an art major and an English major. And, um, you know, uh, part of this, I think, was the... Uh, not, you know, I'll apologize to my mom now, but, you know, that idea that English is a safe bet in some ha some case, like art is not practical, not like an English degree is, you know, the most, uh, not like there's tons of, of jobs there either, but nonetheless, it somehow seemed a little more practical than, than art. So I double majored there. So what happened was I had a really great um, instructor who taught literature and he was in that um, general studies thematic program this guy Roger Kay and Roger said you know why are you still here why are you still in Chico you know you, you can do so many other things there's this um, there's an exchange with Rutgers in New Jersey and at the time I was like New Jersey you know <laughs> what am I going to do in New Jersey and then I started looking into it and they had a fantastic English program and Mason Gross School of the Arts was an incredible art school. So I went for a year and um, I got there. I realized I couldn't do two degrees because, you know, the way transfer credits work. So I hung on to the English degree. But while I was there, I really spent all my time in the painting studio. So while I was getting this English degree, I hung out with all the painters. And, and that was sort of gave me a taste of what it was like to to really spend a lot of time with people who were speaking your own speaking a similar language something I, I didn't really get a lot of that while I was in Chico yeah you found your people in other words you found your kind of your tribe yeah and also my place I mean the the fact that Rutgers was 45 minutes from New York City was incredible so we would all just pile onto the train and you know go to openings in the city and at the time Soho was the the big center and we would go to Soho and see shows, and it really gave me um, the inkling that this is where I wanted to be. So at, when that year of that exchange was up, I stayed. I see. And then uh, later an MFA in painting, so you continued your artistic training in that, in that respect. Yeah, after I left Rutgers, so I, I left there, and um, I met uh, the woman who would become my wife, uh, Nancy, and she, uh, she and I moved to the city, so... We were living in New York, and I kind of decided to take a little bit of time off. When I was at Rutgers, I was I was doing a lot of, you know, portraity kind of paintings, kind of Alice Neal-like portraiture, kind of very brushy stuff. When I decided I wanted to go to grad school, I wanted to sort of think about a big change in terms of what kind of work I was doing. And I one of the things that was, I think this is an interesting theme that runs through my work, is that... When I was at Rutgers, I really struggled with this idea that I was really interested in literature and I was really interested in painting and art. And I really wanted to find a way to make those two things work together. And painting, I just had the hardest time doing it. And it was a, it was a great struggle while I was having it, but it was, um, 
something I never really resolved to my satisfaction. So when I went to when I um, was putting together a portfolio, I really kind of shifted my work to think much more intensively about materials and the role that the sort of poetic quality of that different materials have and their ability to speak not as um, image but as as stuff you know and the way that that can can begin to sort of communicate different kinds of things so that was really I took a couple of years off and then I I got an MFA at Hunter which was just spectacular it was such a great experience and my time at Hunter was also kind of interesting because I uh, had the greatest studio mate one could ask for, which is this guy, Jason Glasser, who's um, just, uh, he's a multi-instrumentalist and uh, a fantastic artist and a great guy. And he knew I was interested in all this crazy music and he was interested in crazy music. And I was um, making, I started making all these instruments in the back of my studio. You know, I was still making paintings, but I, uh, I started making these things like cellos out of styrofoam and you'd play them with a rubber bow. These machines that would kind of beat themselves up when you turn them on. And... Never really at the time thinking anything of it. I was just kind of making them because I wanted to. And I, uh, the way that the uh, Hunter worked is that you would have these things called tutorials. And in the tutorial, one of uh, a faculty would basically come to your studio and, and chat with you on a semi-regular basis about what you were up to. And I had this um, painter named Vincent Longo, who was a great, great guy. He, um, is uh you know he's a color painter and uh does really beautiful paintings kind of far from what i was doing and certainly far from this sound stuff that i was starting to get into but he came to my studio and he looked at my paintings and we talked about them and then he looked over in the corner and said what what's that thing over there and that thing was this um this machine that you know when you turned it on it had these strings and this motor would kind of beat at these strings and I said, it's, you know, it's just these things I'm making in my studio. And he said, um, what does it do? So I plugged it in and it just starts going crazy. And he looks at me and he says, he points to the painting and he says, why are you doing this? That is obviously what you want to be doing. <laughs> This was, uh, you know, this was a year into my into my degree, and you know, an MFA is a sh sort of a short experience; it's two years. So, but it was like this magic moment where someone kind of hands you the permission, you know, to just chuck it. And so that was a tremendous turning point for me, where I just said, "All right, this is this is my invitation to completely switch switch gears," and I did, like absolutely. That that was a pivotal point for me.
let's kind of go backwards a little bit. And, and something that you said was actually one of the things that uh, you had brought up to me as something that you might want to talk about, which is the materials and how um, sort of the process and how you like to work and your relationship with material. Where do you get ideas and how does working with a variety of materials change that process for you? I think a lot of that process, I look back to my time at, um, at Hunter and my time at the studio there, and it's kind of a, a pretty good model for the way I think about how I approach materials and, and um, content. And what I did then at that time, my studio really looked like someone had lobbed a couple of grenades into it. I mean, it was just stuff everywhere. I was dragging stuff in from the street. I was making these machines that would, uh, you know, that were uh, made out of old desks and motors and all this stuff. And part of it for me at that time, trying to get comfortable with something I frankly knew very little about. I mean, for me, even just uh, working with electricity, it was, uh, you know, it was a very DIY affair. And part of it was um, having all that stuff and at my fingertips. So it was really just having all these materials floating around it and plugging them together as I saw fit. So at that time, it was really kind of a, a process of accumulation that I would pull these things together. And sometimes it would be um, because an object suggested a use, you know, that, oh, that could make an interesting, uh, you know, arm for this motor that could hit those tin cans or whatever it might be. But then sometimes I would really want to sort of think about a specific effect and then the the materials would follow. So it was always this kind of tug back and forth between starting with a desired effect and uh, working with materials. Looking at what I'm doing now, the kind of work that I'm doing is um, I'm still really focusing a lot on materials, but in a much more kind of... Um, I'm, I'm making these drawings these days and they're, I'm just calling them proposals. I usually do a lot of um, a lot of drawing as kind of preparation for my work. And one thing I, I really like about that is that more often than not, I'm delving very consciously into processes that I I don't really understand. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's kind of a scientific bent to what I'm doing, but I'm no scientist. And so I'm making these proposals for things, uh, perhaps materials that would uh, act together in a certain way and then create sound. So, for example, I had a piece in a show called Intangible, and it was at a place called Leslie Heller Gallery on the Lower East, East Side, Manhattan. And um, I proposed this project called Shrink Trap. And Shrink Trap was basically like this, um, it was like a box that was like a little sound studio. So it was this uh, acoustic uh, foam interior, you know, like you would see in a recording studio. And I, I would create these little experiments I would put them in the box and there was a camera in the top of the box and there were microphones inside the box and I would close it and there were also some lights in there that would produce heat and I would just let the thing go and record what happened. And most of that was with me not actually knowing what was going to happen. So, you know, some of the times I would make these very elaborate drawings of what this proposal would be, and then nothing would happen, you know? So it would be like the piece itself becomes really more about the drawing and about this kind of failure, you know? And that failure becomes a really interesting prompt because 
there's always something that I'm pulling out of that failure to kind of move it to the next piece. So even those ones that are spectacular and something magical happens, uh, the failures sit alongside those in a, a really important way. So one, one of the pieces that I did in the shrink trap one uh, is working with this stuff called thermoplastic. So when I started on this adventure of really thinking about these kind of uh, heat-driven processes, I asked my sculptor friends, because, you know, who knows materials better than sculptors, I asked them if they had any thoughts um, about materials that would transform or, uh, or deform under certain conditions like wet or heat or dryness or whatever, um, you know, might push a material to change. And uh, a friend of mine named Derek Haffer suggested this stuff called thermoplastic, which is used in the medical industry. And it's basically that stuff that, you know, when you see a kid with a bright green cast on his arm, it's, uh, it's this plastic stuff. So what it is, is it's this plastic that you can heat and you can shape it. But the cool thing about it is that when you heat it and you stretch it out, stretch it sort of beyond what it's meant to do, and it hardens, as soon as you heat it again, it wants to shrink. And so what I was doing was using this thermoplastic and then doing things like covering it with, um, with gold leaf or covering it with uh, eggshells. So that when it when it's you know exposed to heat, it begins to shrink and deform and do all of these crazy things. So that that's an example a bit of uh, of this sort of exploration of materials. And one of the things I think um, you know that's that project really I think got me thinking about this sort of scientific. The, the scientific qualities of some of the things I was doing with materials, and I, um, I'm a big fan of the uh, the French writer Alfred Jarry. And Alfred Jarry is uh, known for a lot of things, but one of the things that that some people know him for is this thing called pataphysics. And pataphysics uh, is uh, it's not a huge part of his work, but it's it's something that pops up in his work and he defines it as the science of imaginary solutions, which I always loved, you know, this idea that um, he would, with incredibly straight face, write these, these uh, lengthy scientific explanations that were just completely uh, bonkers. <laughs> to, you know, to, can't think of a better word than that, but, you know, he would propose, but they would be based on these scientific writings that he had read. So he would, he would patch together all of this language. And he was really um, a great researcher because he really pulled together all this language to make it sound quite, um, quite believable. But you knew sort of under, underneath it, there was this absurdity to it. And he was the, um, the uh, creator of the theater of the absurd. And so that idea of humor, so humor and absurdity, you know, were all always things that I really liked um, to sort of pop up in my own work. So these kind of material deformations, they're they're proposed with a certain level of seriousness. You know, they, there's all of these materials and, and the drawings and all of this stuff. But it, at the heart of it, like, why would you want to shrink this thermoplastic with, covered with eggshells. <laughs> What's the point of that? You know, so the, the exercise itself has this kind of absurd basis. And so, you know, that's, that's part of 
where I'm where I am now in terms of material working with materials. That's fascinating. Well, I want to go back to something that you said. You were talking about uh, how how your work is sort of informed by science, but that you're not a scientist and this kind of thing. There's a piece that I I sort of earmark that I was interested to hear about, and it's uh, it's a little bit older of a piece of yours. It's called the Dictionary, <clears throat> excuse me, the Dictionary Project, and you describe it as a computer-based collaborative compositional environment. And uh, I found that some of the resultant sound pieces that were made from this fascinating, very interesting. And maybe this is a good example of combining technology or science with with your sort of uh, creative curiosity. Can you talk about yeah. that piece a little bit? Sure. Um, that was actually, uh, it's a funny time when I made that piece because it was, you know, before the, the social uh, networking revolution and the ease that we can share files with now and things like SoundCloud. So I was, um, I was always interested in, in music and, and creating things, uh, creating sound, but the whole idea of composition was something that I'd never really dipped into, especially in working with other people. So I think to a certain degree, I was kind of influenced by things like, you know, John Zorn's game pieces and, you know, uh, graphic notation and this idea that you could have these kind of instructions that would help guide someone to a result and that that result would really be different with, you know, the, the different kinds of people you might be working with. So for me, I was, um, I had kind of a, a musical, there were, group of artists and musicians in this online file sharing network that was this kind of closed network of people that I think maybe maybe Craig uh, talked about this too because he was on he was part of that that's actually how we met was on this um, this place it was an incredible archive of music and so I decided well you know maybe I could start doing some collaboration work with all these incredibly interesting people so I set up the parameters for this this essentially game, which the idea of it was that um, to begin, you would go to the Oxford English Dictionary website and you would look at the word of the day. So there was always a word of the day. And that would determine, based on what that word was, it would determine a number of parameters for what uh, how you would then uh, proceed. So what you would proceed with is a, a series of samples and the samples that were used would be contributed by all the people who are playing the game. So there would be um, samples that stood for from A to Z. 5.50 p.m. So, you know, and they would have different kind of characteristics. So that would be the pool of, of sounds that people would be working with. So if someone got uh, a word and it had a certain number of vowels, that would tell them to do one thing. It would tell them what kind of samples to work with. It would give them uh, the duration of the piece. And that was it. You know, So it was a very open system. But there was also this thing that I really liked about it is that, yeah, honestly, these things could sound like anything uh, when they're, you know, at the hands of the person who's doing that that uh, that work, but there's always the word, you know, that word that you started with, and that was a I, I always found fascinating. Like, how did the 
the things that the people made reflect back on this this word which was at the beginning quite arbitrary but but it begins to change the way you read that piece fascinating fascinating so you were basically just asking the question you know i think of john cage where he says you know he just asked questions you know to make pieces he would ask questions and uh yeah it's terrific really interesting and also i think you know uh i love that quote by um by jasper johns which was um something to the effect of take an object do something to it and then do something else to it you know this idea of how do you how do you make a piece and for me it was kind of extending that idea to like um you know take an object have someone else do something to it and then have someone else do something to that so the idea of the collaborative structure is that we're all influencing each other and and the move that the moves that one of us makes then sort of nudges someone in into a different orbit and i think that that's um one of the reasons I've really been so drawn to collaboration is that, you know, where that question of where do ideas come from? And when you're collaborating, I always love there's with a good collaboration, there's this moment where you can't remember, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Was that my idea? Was it your idea? You know, was it something that happened in the, in the middle of a process? Was it a mistake that we made that we capitalized on? That's where that's, I think, where the magic happens. Yeah. Well, I've always found that my my work as both a performer and as a composer were always elevated when I was in collaboration with another person. And that, that same kind of idea happens for me. Like you said, you forget who came up with the idea. It just was this magic of, of, of collaboration, the impact of collaboration. So maybe we could touch on that a little bit. I mentioned in the intro that collaboration is a key element in your work, and you've just been talking about it. So let's talk. let's go a little deeper with that. Maybe you want to touch on... Uh, maybe one or two collaborations that have been particularly impactful or fruitful? Yeah, boy, I've got such a list. I mean, there's uh, Craig, the work with Craig, I'll, I'll talk about for sure, because it'd be, I, uh, I know he kind of foregrounded that prior to our trip to Greece. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about that in a sec, but I did want to follow up on, on that dictionary project, because the one thing about it, one thing I think that... Um, you know, I think, again, it was sort of going into uncharted territory for me and, and really learning as I went. That idea of working uh, in a networked environment was something I started uh, getting really interested in. And part of it, again, was be ultimately because of a, an accident, you know, or a failure. And I had a friend who was living in Seattle, Rob Henson, who he proposed a project at a place called Consolidated Works in Seattle and he um, would have a group of people uh, performers video artists uh, you know people running a network interfacing with uh, myself and a group of performers in New York City this was it must have been 2001 or something I can't remember exactly how long ago it was but long enough ago that this whole idea of streaming things was was nowhere near as uh, solid as it appears to be now um but what we did was i created this graphic score and it was like this flash score that would kind of move in time and we were all supposed to be following it 
and the guys in Seattle were like, you know about latency, right? And I was like, yeah, I assume, you know, there'll be a drag of some kind. They're like, we'll see what happens. (laughs) So we all started going and, uh, you know, thankfully it was a pretty, uh, you know, aleatoric enterprise to begin with. But uh, when we, uh, what happened? They stopped playing and we kept going for about 10 minutes. <laughs> there wow. was that much, there was that much latency. Wow. And, uh, you know, so they were sitting on stage and we just kept going and going. <laughs> Our timeline hadn't run out, you know? So, and I, at the time, of course, I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe that happened. But then it kind of got my gears turning because I was thinking, like most of the things I do, I, I'm always uh, capitalizing on these things that are, you know, dysfunctional or trying to sort of uh, make something that doesn't, isn't supposed to make sound, make sound. And I started thinking about what might it mean to really capitalize on the failures of the internet? You know, this idea of streaming media and, and latency and how might, how might I use that to my advantage? You know, I've always been a John Cage fan and, and that whole idea of indeterminacy, it seemed like perfect, right? The, 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 uh, the, fluctuations of the internet itself could be used to kind of uh create its own uh in unstable indeterminate environment yeah so that was actually one of the biggest collaborations i'd done i worked um with a programmer in france willie whip to create this program called simultaneous translation well the project was called simultaneous translation and the app was called SimTrans. and what it was was this little application and it would pull feeds in from all the various performers and it would look at the latency of all of the incoming streams and then it would modify the signals based on that. So with a lot of latency, it might you know, uh, add a lot of reverb to someone's signal or it might chop up another signal. So it became, the internet became this player in, in this um, process. And and how is that related to the dictionary project? Forgive me if I missed that. Uh, oh no, I mean I think it's really just related in that it's uh, one, it's sort of collaborating. This was really working with people from all over the world. It was starting with that network uh, from Homey, which was that uh, internet uh, file sharing library. But ultimately, it was uh, just the idea of working again in this kind of web environment and a digital environment and sort of beginning to sort of poke around in places that maybe I'm not so comfortable in and then and sort of capitalizing on some of the some of the um, funny bits. So then back to this idea of collaboration, you said you might mention uh, yours and Craig's uh, work together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Craig and I, uh, we as he mentioned in his uh, his great talk with you, is that uh, he's had a long-standing relationship with uh, a place called the Ionian Center for the Arts and Culture in Kefalonia, Greece. And um, I, when I I'm actually on sabbatical right now, which is absolutely blissful. Oh yes, and uh, <laughs> it's just just magic. So a good year before I was going to take my sabbatical, I just kind of you know, put an email out to all of my friends to say, you know, do you know of any residencies that might fit my temperament or the kind of work I do? And he suggested coming along uh, and doing a collaboration on Kefalonia. And of course, you know, that sounded like a great idea to me, especially since, as he mentioned, it involved working inside a cave. So that that sounded doubly great. So um, 
the piece, you know, he mentioned uh, some of our prep for that. And we had a great uh, sort of preliminary process, like hours and hours of time on shared documents where he was in Atlanta and I was in New York City. And we would just be typing in these Google Docs, like just uh, volumes of, of ideas. And, you know, as with anything, we came up with, you know, uh, hundreds more ideas than we ever we ever realized. And even some of the ideas that we thought we had realized, we didn't realize, and we and we did some things we didn't expect. But one of them was uh, a piece inside this cave that was uh, meant for boats. So it's a cave uh, that the the ceiling fell out of the cave thousands of years ago, and the cave is full of um, full of water. And so you go into this cave and you take these boats, and it's just a magical place. So we wanted to do something that involved feedback. Uh, and so this idea that, you know, using the space itself to kind of become part of the instrument in the same way that, you know, uh, in that simultaneous translation, the idea of using the internet as part of the instrument so that the cave itself becomes one of the players. So what we chose to do was instead to think about using radio, which I've become more and more fond of this idea of using radio, especially because it uh, seems, um, you know, something of a anachronistic uh, technology. But what we did was we had these buoys, and the buoys had little transmitters in them, and they were transmitting these sounds. And the boats had receivers, so the boats would drift in uh, in amongst these uh, transmitters and pick up the sounds uh, in the cave, which was uh, pretty amazing. Wow, that sounds great. And and also part of that project, if I'm remembering it right, had to do with uh, doing some like community-based work like um, on the history of the place and other yeah. aspects of, yeah? Yeah, that was one of, one of the things I would say if there were some things that didn't happen on that trip. <laughs> so, you know, you make a lot of plans. And I think I th even while we were working, they were saying, oh my God, we're going to have to this is going to have to be for a future trip, <laughs> you know? So there were some things I think that we really set aside and said, you know, we can only do so many things, but I'm still very interested in that idea of, of uh, the island has a really um, devastating history of earthquakes and it's something that's ever present in people's psyches there, especially since, you know, they they still have tremors fairly regularly. So, so that idea of thinking about, seismicity and sound and vibration all of those things really came uh naturally together for us and and there are themes that did move through a lot of what we did while we were there but i think the community part that takes a lot of time and trust and our host uh sophie kagadis um who's a wonderful person she can make pretty much anything happen uh but nonetheless uh we wanted to really give that the time it deserved so we didn't get there this time and and the piece was called Siren Earthquake Radio, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, Craig is a real interesting person. I was introduced to him by some of my uh, musician friends in, in uh, Atlanta, specifically Stuart Gerber, who's a percussionist there in Atlanta, runs the uh, Bent Frequency Ensemble, which is a great group uh, that you might, you might check out if you haven't heard of them or haven't heard their performances. They do some really unique uh, programming and just really great work. But they entered, he introduced me to Craig, and uh, when I was there, I was on sabbatical this past spring, mm -hmm. and one of the things that I did was uh, I went and did a performance with Bent Frequency in, in Atlanta, uh -huh. 
and uh, so while I was there, I, I called up Craig and said, hey, you know, it'd be great to get together and meet in person and see your studio and see what you're working on. And um, anytime I've talked to Craig, I, I always come away with a with a list of names and and books and films and things to go look up, you know. And uh, this last time That's I was yeah, very funny. And I don't know if That's you exactly experience, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if you experience this, but with Craig, it's always oh, you know, so and so, and he'll say some name that I've never heard before. Oh yeah, he was this, you know, he he or she was this thing, and he'll launch into the the story, and oh, you know, so, and then the next name, oh, you know, so and so, and and uh, and we, uh, I was there with one of my uh, dear friends and mentors, uh, Alan Adi from Cincinnati, and. Uh, Anyway, we were in his studio and he was showing us all, he brought all these um, sort of, he's into this electronic stuff like these coils, the Tesla coils, and he carries them around. And uh, anyway, just some fascinating, totally blew my mind some of the stuff that he introduced me to. I'm still sort of surfing through uh, some of the lists that he that he gave me of names and things to go look up. But that, that guy is a, he's a very special artist, a very special human, uh, you know, just thinks like no one else, you know, he is absolutely, I'm, I'm always amazed, like exactly as you say that you'll be, you'll be talking about something and he'll be pulling these references out. And, And some of them are very directly related, but some of them will be way out there in left field, but they'll be, you know, a very logical connection between them you know he'll tease it out and and it's kind of incredible to to see him you can kind of i really got a great sense while i was in greece to see uh his brain is like a network you know and you can sort of see you can see all the nodes uh at work so it was very interesting to work together because i think we have um very similar um we have similar interests, but I think really kind of different methods. And I think that that's often what makes for really interesting collaborations because ultimately, you know, if every if everything is sort of roses, it's easy for things to kind of happen without uh, grit, you know. And I think that kind of grit of, of different working methods is, a, is one way, I think, to, to create new things and to kind of get... Uh, unexpected jumps to happen in a work. Well, I want to kind of go back to some work that uh, maybe where we share a little common ground, uh, some of the pieces that include sound or music. And uh, I'm particularly myself as a performer interested in graphic scores. And Mm. I've done quite a lot of that kind of work. And so I was interested to talk about... uh, one of the pieces that you uh, have that uses that, but also I'm, I'm fascinated with found sounds and and specifically like ephemeral media and you know using old films or old recordings and uh, I've I've mm. just been real interested in that kind of thing as well. So there's two pieces that that come to mind here. One is a piece uh, called a nice stone foundation. Which is amazing, hilarious. Uh, you know, so, or not maybe hilarious isn't the right word, but it struck me as. Oh very, no, it's hilarious! It's hilarious. <laughs> it struck me as very funny and also just bizarre and fascinating. Uh, so I'd like, I'd love for you to talk about that piece, and then the other one uh, that I want to hear about it a little bit is the um, Robo Improvisation Arena, which is the one where you used robots to make these painted or graphic scores that were then 
realized uh, in the in the space. So either one of those would be great. I'd love to hear about both of them. Well, the, a nice stone foundation. There's not a lot to say other than the sort of magic of finding this tape. Um, we were I was in um, Cape Cod, and we went to a. Uh, it was like an estate sale or something and you know there was a barn and just boxes full of junk and there was a radio shack recorder like record handheld recorder still in the box and i thought you know i like tape recorders i could probably make use of that so i bought it and i took it home i opened it up and there was a tape inside and the tape was this tape of a man traveling around that neighborhood with I'm, I'm assuming his daughter perhaps and um cataloging all of the houses all of the historical houses and whether or not they had a stone foundation in particular so you know the the detail of it is just wonderful so he'll say well this is the house that was formerly owned by the number 388 the, the little house up on the hill that some people have said is one of the oldest 464 is captain nathaniel burgess's house Number 508 has a stone foundation. Error, error, I meant 502. 508 is the next house, and I'm not even sure it has a stone foundation. Let's drive up there and check it. But 502 definitely has the cut stone base. So you'll get like these little sort of tidbits of, of what's going on in that neighborhood, but ultimately what he's interested in is whether or not it's got a brick or a stone foundation. <laughs> It's really terrific. What a great piece. What a great and find. And so that was, yeah, Amazing. serendipity, you know. So with um, a, with, let me ask you something. So with a piece like that, uh, you know, you, you find it. Um, how do, I mean, other than me finding it on your website, how do people, how have you played it live in a gallery or how do you show this kind of work? That really was just a bit of ephemera that I found and, okay. and put up on my website. So okay. it's not something I've used. Okay. Um, and I think I kind of like it that way, you know, that someone else just might stumble on it the same way I did. Well, yeah. differently, but but similarly, you know, that it would be a kind of a nice surprise for someone to, to have themselves. Yeah. Great. Well, let's transition then and talk about the robots making the graphic scores. Yeah. So this is another project that... Um, I have, uh, there are some uh, artists who live in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and they had a gallery called uh, Dobbin Mill, and um, or it Almond Dobbin was the name of the gallery. And they were going to work with this woman named Keita Wenzel, who's an artist from Berlin who just does fascinating work. And they suggested we do a collaboration. So my first impulse is always to say yes. Uh, what does she do? <laughs> you know, so yes is always first, and then, then uh, well, let's let's see what exactly this would mean. So she had this project where she was creating these robots, and the robots would uh, wield these paintbrushes, and they would paint marks, and you know, users could control them. So I thought, you know, what will what? How should I intersect with this? So I decided to basically create this arena for the robots, and the idea was that these robots would be traveling on this kind of platform and you would have visitors come and they'd be controlling these robots and they'd be making marks on, on the paper. So the whole stage was covered with paper. But underneath the stage, there were these magnets. And as the robots passed over them, they would um, turn on these four lights. So each corner, imagine like a boxing ring. 
uh, each of the corners had a light on it and there would be a performer stationed at each of those corners. So uh, I think the first night we had uh, Aaron Moore was playing trumpet and then we had um, we had someone playing violin. There was someone playing. I can't, I, they did it two nights and it was different lineups, but you know, a variety, really kind of different instrumentation. We had a theremin one night, um, but the idea was basically that as, when they uh, turned these lights on, when the robots turned the lights on, that performer had to follow that robot's marks as a score. So they would watch as the, the person was making these different marks and they would interpret them as uh, sound. So the desire here was really, one, you know, again, to sort of create a collaborative environment. But I was really also interested in that idea of participation and, you know, bringing the audience in. And, and that kind of, um, what I really wanted was that idea that one of the visitors would sort of discover that they were helping, you know, to make the sound. So that they were actually part of the control mechanism for how the thing took shape. Uh, sounds fantastic. I would love to do. I would love to do this. So, is that is that uh, does it travel at all, or is it only a one-time thing, or you know, is this possible to be done again? That was or? a. Oh, I, that was a one-time thing, but it would be great to do it again. You know, it'd be uh, because I think I like these I, the idea that um, you know it's like the dictionary project or the you know simultaneous translation that depending on who's in those seats, the project is going to be wildly different. Right, right. And also who's coming to control the robots, you know, if there's if there's only one person and you got one robot going around, the piece is going to sound very different than if you've got, you know, four robots running around at the same time triggering everything constantly. Yeah. One thing I did discover, I mean, I think the idea that, you know, you're a percussionist and you've got uh sort of a dedicated listenership of of percussionists who listen to this show. One thing I did find, uh Aaron Moore, who's he's a incredible musician percussionist from a band uh from england called volcano the bear and he lives in brooklyn so when i decided to do this i'd never met him before so when i wanted to do this project i decided to get in touch with him and say you know would you be interested because i knew he built some of his own instruments and that he liked to do uh you know um lots of very inventive things in terms of instrumentation. So I thought he would be game and he was. And we've um, we've really kind of kept in touch and I've really discovered um, that I really like working with percussionists. And I think part of it is that kind of uh, nimbleness, you know, like when, when a situation arises and things change fast, uh, the percussionists I've worked with were very, uh, very quick to capitalize on these little gestures and, and little things that might sort of turn a work. Um, and so Aaron was really the first, I think the first percussionist I work with. Well, it, it makes sense to me. Uh, uh, it makes sense to me. I mean, percussionists are the ones when, you know, uh, I don't know, any kind of odd ball thing that, a, you know, a composer might bring to the table you know who is going to who's going to play the typewriter in this piece it's probably not going to be the first violinist you know it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be the percussionist so we're yeah. i think we're just sort of hardwired for experimental ideas and thinking you know doing things outside of the norm so yeah another project i did with a percussionist was um so since i've been on my sabbatical uh i've been doing a lot of residencies and 
uh, it's been really amazing to work so intensely in such a short period of time. And right uh, June 1st, I did a three-week residency at a place called Pilchuck Glass School. Uh, and Pilchuck Glass School is, I think it's like an hour and a half or an hour north of Seattle. And it's, uh, it was started by Dale Chihuly and, you know, all of the, these uh, the sort of big uh, glass artists who really kind of helped found that movement. They started this school in the woods in this beautiful place, and um, it draws people from all around the world to take classes there, but they also have um, this uh, artist-in-residence program. And so every session they have two artists-in-residence come. And the idea really is that that you know because glass uh is many people come to it as a craft some people come to it as in a more sort of contemporary way but it's not tends to be not a a culture that's that connected to contemporary art and so uh dale chihuly when he started it he wanted to make sure that he was still sort of pushing the language of glass forward uh and and getting people to think outside the box so one of the things that I, my whole proposal when I went there was to really think about glass, and this is kind of back to the idea of materials, and was to think about glass as matter. You know, the idea that, you know, plenty of people have done things with glass and sound, and I think that that's really interesting, and I did a lot of things with that too. But um, what was interesting to me is that glass is, uh, you know, born out of heat, and it's got this sort of alchemical kind of process, and the way that they make it is this amazing collaborative uh, production, and I wanted to really harness some of that. But um, there happened to be a percussionist there while I was there, this guy named Ben Portnoy. And so what I did was I asked, um, so I worked with these people called gaffers, and the gaffers, I would do all these drawings for things I wanted to make, and we would work uh, in the hot shop and they would make these all of these objects and so one day I asked them to specifically make a lot of big objects to break so I wanted them instead of you know this precious object that you would make and and it would be this beautiful vase or whatever I wanted them to make stuff uh, uh, you know expressly to be destroyed so they blew these incredibly big beautiful uh, orb shapes you know probably about a dozen of them and so what I did was I set them up in the woods on this blanket. There was this pile of these orbs. And then I asked all of the um, uh, students there, they were invited to make a horn. So everybody made their own glass horn, and a lot of people did, which was great. So then what happened is that there was a procession that went up the hill. So it was, you know, a decent walk up the hill. And uh, when they reached the woods, I had set up these uh, sort of mechanized glass sound objects around, and there were radio transmitters in them, and it was sort of expanding the network of these sounds. And so people wandered around and, and listened to these things. And then Ben sits down in front of all of these glass objects and just begins to play them. So, and it was like, a, I had no idea what he was going to do. You know, I imagined that he would just... Um, he would play them very gingerly or whatever and he did at first but then by the end of it he had de he had just reduced all of this glass to just basically powder i mean it was and it was a beautiful thing you know because as he played it really the sound continually changed and it was a, again one of those situations where it's like 
I didn't know what he was going to do, but his instincts were so good. And I think that there's something about that, you know, real connection to timing and that a percussionist has that, uh, again, it sort of sealed the deal for me. I want to keep working with percussionists. Great. Well, uh, I'm, I'm always open for, for this kind of thing. So if you have a project, right please keep me in mind. Um, another thing that you and I share an interest in besides, uh, you know, percussionists <laughs> is, um, <laughs> and, and sound and, and this kind of thing is, uh, instrument making and design. I, I started dabbling in this last year and, uh, have made a, what I think is a pretty good instrument. And so I've been kind of exploring this whole world of instrument makers and I've had a, a few, a couple of them on the show. Of course, Mark Applebaum with his uh, instrument inventions also inspired me quite a lot to make, uh, what I made which was basically a sounding board with a bunch of springs attached to it and some music boxes and threaded, uh, threaded yeah, like bolts. Piece, yeah. And... Like bolts and, and also strings and a slinky and nails. Mm. And so it's, it's makes all kinds of interesting sounds. And then I run it through the computer and do a, a quite a lot of sound processing, a live processing with it. So it turns into this very large uh, thing capable of making soundscapes and all kinds of interesting things. But in the process wow. of in the process of making that and and kind of exploring this whole world, you know, I've been turned on to some interesting makers, and there there seems to be a whole kind of subculture of uh, instrument designers and makers. You know, kind of in the in the lineage of Harry Parch, some of them more more electronic, some of them more acoustic. And so uh, when I found out that this was something that you did, of course, I, I looked at all of your stuff on your website and what you've been up to. And these instruments made from rubber bands looked really interesting uh -huh. to me. And then you uh, had a video that you linked to on your site uh, from a piece called World Music by Max Eastley. And I had never, oh, yeah. I had never heard of Max Eastley either. So I checked that out, and that was crazy, fascinating. He's amazing. Wow, just uh, this whole world. So tell me about your uh, instrument building and and what you've been up to with with that re with regards to that. Well, it's funny you're talking about you know all of the springs and stuff. I, I actually went to a concert last night. Um, and uh, there's a great place in New York called Spectrum. And Spectrum is essentially a guy's apartment that's uh, in an old synagogue. And he has these, he basically opens it up for people to program these concerts. And there was a, a series, a long running series there called Ambient Chaos. And um, Aaron Moore, who I talked about before from Volcano the Bear was doing a solo uh, thing there as part of the a group of people. And, um, some of the someone who was playing there was a guy named Adam Bowman. Do you know his work at all? I, I don't. He's from uh he's from England and he was in a part of a group called Morphogenesis, which is someone something you should check out, but he does a lot of stuff where he's um he attaches springs and uh glasses and forks and all this stuff to a table and you know mics them up and makes an incredible uh series of sounds but that, that was just last night so which was pretty pretty remarkable but my own instrument building really again that kind of harkens back to uh one i think i had a failed uh sort of desire to be a musician without musical training <laughs> so one of you know one of the things uh that was really interesting for me when i was at 
Rutgers no at Hunter when I was in grad school is that when I really decided okay I'm gonna take this route and I'm gonna really start thinking about sound and object making to make sound I um I met someone there this guy Jim Ruvel uh James Ruvel who's uh he teaches at Micah in Baltimore and he, he actually it was re- really interesting because I came from a visual arts background and I was interested into getting in getting into sound and he was actually uh, trained as a musician and a composer like I think he went to Juilliard and he was interested in kind of doing the reverse commute like he wanted to get into the idea of working in installation and and thinking of more of a visual art uh, world so we really hit it off and we started doing a lot of collaborations so but while I was there I was uh, I was making all of these instruments and for me I think one thing I liked about making these instruments is I like to make instruments that were not easy to play. Like I was not interested in making something that you could play a scale on, you know. It was, uh, the rubber bands were really uh, fun for me to work with because they they kind of defied um, virtuosity to a certain degree. They, they're very unpredictable. And part of it was because I how I played them, which was that I would, you know, make these things out of metal lunch boxes or, you know, old olive, barrels or whatever I could find uh, with pickups on them and I would string these rubber bands on them but I would play them with uh, I had these incredible motors that were actually turntable motors and they had this beautiful chrome shaft and so I would use that shaft I would wet the um, rubber bands and play them with this um, with the shaft of this motor and it would vibrate them and so you know it could go anywhere from sounding like someone singing to a violin to just horrible screeching to sort of uh, space-like sounds but they were one thing was very true is that they were very unpredictable and, and I sort of liked that about them. And I think to some degree it kind of uh, is another theme that runs through my work this idea of um, you know this line between mastery you know or virtuosity and and amateurism or the DIY or the untrained and and that's something that I I think is continuing even with some of these installations I'm making now you know this idea that there's uh, I'm sort of poking my nose into things that uh, I don't have a firm grasp of entirely and that in some ways helps drive the direction of the work Uh, and the sort of failure success ratio that ends up breeding, you know, new pieces. Yeah, this is one of the things that you mentioned to me was uh, John Cage's tourist attitude. You mentioned Mm -hmm. the kind of mastery versus discovery, and I I just want to read this quote because it's really terrific. Uh, He says, What I'm proposing to myself and other people is what I often call the tourist attitude, that you act as though you've never been there before. So that you're not supposed to know how any, uh, you're you're not supposed to know anything about it. If you really get down to brass tacks, we have never been anywhere before. <laughs> it's great. It's classic. Yeah, it's classic John Cage. But but here yeah. you are embracing this idea of this sort of uh, virtuosity versus amateurism, and and making a device that it's really impossible to be a virtuoso on, you know. And Cage did that with his music too. I mean, I'm thinking of, mm. um, just from the percussion standpoint, he, he wrote a piece called child of tree, which was for amplified plant materials. And his idea was that you would 
choose objects that you would sort of that they're unpredictable and they would change from so you couldn't really practice them the amplified cactus comes to mind that was the kind of the main yeah, cool. main thing right. you know you could practice it and then one of the spines will fall off or something will not <laughs> go as you thought so you're having to sort of discover it as you're performing and it yeah. sort of made it impossible to be a real virtuoso of the the amplified cactus, you know. That's a really a great way to put it. I think you know that idea that you're discovering it as it's it's as it's unfolding. And I think that that kind of um, I mean I guess that's what improv's all about. But when you're working with something that's kind of um, likely to fly apart in any minute, you know, there's a certain kind of tension in that. I think that's um, that's kind of. Uh, I know it's exciting, I think, as a performer and also nerve wracking at the same time. Yeah, I think with Cage, you know, it's it's sort of improvisation. But if you if you really, you know, study his writings and what he says about improvisation, he was not a big fan of like jazz hmm. improvisation. He said that was taste and memory, which was something that he didn't really want to deal with. He wanted you to solve a problem as you performed or that as you learned a piece. And so, uh, so it very much is this idea of discovering and solving problems in order to even play these pieces. So, right. uh, so I think it fits right in line. I mean, I think you're you're definitely following this kind of idea uh, through line. I think it's funny, you know, even that just that idea of performance. That you know, when I started this kind of trajectory of becoming some kind of an artist, <laughs> whatever that might be. I, I always have trouble sort of defining myself. But um, uh, if anybody had told me that my work would have veered towards performance in any way, I would have laughed at them. I, I couldn't even imagine, you know, this idea of, uh, of, of working in performance. And that I really have come to really respect the idea that your work pushes you in places that make you uncomfortable, you know, and, and then you know you're doing you're doing something right when suddenly this thing feels like foreign it's like again like the tourist attitude you know this idea this feels foreign to me uh and it's uncomfortable and that's probably a good thing yeah well maybe you can give me some advice on this that you're talking about defining yourself and defining you know who, what you are as an artist who you are as an artist and i've always in in more recent years struggled more and more with this idea you know i when i look at what the percussion world what people are doing in that world i'm not i'm not really so interested i i mean i hate to say this for all the percussionists listening but i i'm not so interested mm -hmm. in what's going on there i'm more interested in in the kind of work that's happening in your world you know and uh, craig dongoski's world and uh less and less interested in you know just kind of what's happening in the in in my own little tribe and uh when i look at my training, I mean, it's very much as a classically trained percussionist. You know, I played orchestral percussion. I played drums. You know, I, I can do all those things. But it's not really what I'm what, what I'm passionate about. And my interest is always in the creative aspect of music making and, and even crossing the line out of music and into some other area like performance art. Uh, I've worked with a lot of poets. Now with this instrument building thing, it's almost towards sculpture. I'm sort of, I'm finding this, um, this whole de definition of who I am as a, as an artist to be kind of difficult these days. I don't, I mean, I, by training, I'm definitely a percussionist and I can definitely do that, you know, but in practice, I'm not sure that that's what I am, <laughs> if that makes any that's, sense. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, 
one thing I, I had some really interesting revelations in all of this intensive work I've been doing this summer. And, you know, we, we're kind of always building on our own history. And, um, you know, it feels like this kind of ladder that you're going up, like I've got the next rung, you know, I'm, I'm now this sort of caliber of performer, I'm this caliber of a visual artist. Um, but, you know, one thing that happened to me, that idea of, first of all, in grad school, when I was given this permission to change gears, I think that kind of changed my, my understanding of what that kind of linearity of your own history even means. And, even since then, you know, I've been sort of myself, I've been following the sit path working with sound and I started increasingly sort of thinking of myself as someone who works primarily with sound. And um, what I found, I think, this summer is that when I was really intensely absorbed in my work, the sound actually acted for me more as like this, um, like a, an input, you know, like starting with sound but then everything became much more visual so i started finding myself that the sound in some ways was like uh was like fuel and that the pieces were actually coming back around to my prior history more of really thinking of in terms of uh, visuality and i th i found like this is kind of a real interesting place to be because i had kind of written off some of uh, i always imagined that the sound was primary and now I'm sort of, I'm rethinking that. And I think that that's really interesting, you know? So if you want to build instruments, it's like you, you should find a way to make that happen. And uh, I think, you know, even if you do circle back around and it's going to inform, obviously it'll inform your playing and it'll inform, you know, the, the people you hang out with, the people you meet, you know, the kinds of classes that you want to teach. Uh, all of these things, suddenly the network widens. And even if you find yourself back at the beginning, uh, the beginning is now changed. Mm, beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, I I think even the the process, I mean, the whole idea of even just doing this podcast was to kind of uh, see what, see how people's journey and their idea, how they're working and how they define themselves as an artist. And uh, that has been, you're talking about expanding the network. I mean, just the fact of reaching out to you and saying, hey, Let's talk about your work. I've, I've checked it out, and it's interesting. And tell me about what you do. You know, that's that's also expanding this network, too. I mean, for, in this case, for both of us, you know. But, um, yeah, but this absolutely. whole project has been really wonderful and kind of opening up some different uh, different doors and different opportunities. So uh, it's one of the reasons I like to collaborate so much, you know, is that you end up especially, I mean, for the most part, I'm, I'm generally working with visual artists, sound artists and musicians, but you know, I'm interested in working with all different kinds of people. So you'd mentioned working with poets and I've worked, done a lot of work with this guy, Matthew Rohrer, who's a poet here in Brooklyn. And I just find that there's something, um, it's a, a great kind of fuel to your to your work to suddenly see your work from a different vantage point. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, something you mentioned earlier, and another thing that we share is uh, the role of teachers. So let's talk a little bit. I don't want to take too much time because we're we're getting on in time here, but I would like to get your take on teaching and the the role of teaching for you in your life and in your work. You know, what are the pros and cons? You mentioned the idea in our correspondence before the show that teaching can be kind of a model to support your work in the studio. Maybe you can elaborate on that, uh, those points. 
Well, it's funny. My teaching is, is uh, I've been teaching at Parsons for 13 years now, and it's uh, it's been many things. So I, you know, when I first started teaching there, I was really just I was at that point really getting into the sound stuff. But what I started teaching there was I was teaching two dimensional design classes, and which was very different than the work I was doing. I uh, I had a visual arts background, but you know suddenly I was I was really I was teaching things that I, to be completely honest, I hope none of my former students are listening, but I had never been taught these things. I, because I was an English major, I didn't do any of those foundation classes. You know, I didn't, I sort of came, I came to all of that uh, my own way, you know, and by sort of thinking interdisciplinarily. So for me, I was actually being asked to to relearn a lot of these things, which Honestly, I think that's one of the greatest reasons to teach is that any new class is an excuse to research things. And I think that that keeps things fresh uh, for me. But that said, you know, for many years I was teaching uh, part time, then I became full time faculty. But it was more, more often than not teaching things that were adjacent to what I did. Uh, only recently I started teaching classes. I teach a class called Sound Matters, uh, which is about. Um, thinking about sound as a way to kind of uh, to generate ideas across different kinds of art and design practices so it's not really pitched to to sound art though I do talk a lot about that but it's really you know how might a fashion designer think about sound or how might how might uh, you know a writer think about sound and how do you by getting all of those people in a room together do you end up with a different kind of conversation and then I've been teaching a class called time which is great. And that class has been really a wonderful class to teach because obviously time is a pretty conceptual notion. And while I have to make it fairly concrete in term, because it's a studio class, they actually have to make stuff. But nonetheless, that conversation is one that really informs my own work. So I think finding ways, uh, finding ways that your, your teaching informs your own research or, uh, I don't think I've ever taught the same class twice only because I'm sort of uh, a habitual like uh, you know I'm always uh, moving on to the next thing or like I should try it this way or I should try this new project and you know and that's that's what keeps it interesting for me. Yeah one piece of advice that was given to me was similar to what you're saying but you know bringing your research interests into the classroom yeah, the things that you're interested in, bring that in, even if it doesn't quite fit with the, with the model of what's happening. But uh, you know, eventually you find a way. As you said, you you were teaching classes that were adjacent to kind of what you were doing, but eventually you know you found a way to to incorporate that your work and your research into the teaching. And I think that's really the that seems to be the key. That seems to be like the thing that I want to try to do with my own work is try to bring try to bring that to the students because I know I'm passionate about it, you know, and yeah. I can show them, give them some insight into that. And I've been, I've been trying to do that myself with some of the classes that I, that I teach here. I, of course I teach mostly performance classes. So, you know, like one of the things I did was this summer we had a, um, we have a percussion academy in the summer, which is for high school kids and for college students. And so I just decided you know, I made this instrument. I, I think I know I, I can sort of guide someone else to make something similar. So I went and bought all the materials, and we had an instrument-making session every day. That's you know, great. And it got all the kids working with hammers and uh, drills, and it was a little scary, but, you know, <laughs> it was fun. And it, at the end of the day, we, we made some pretty interesting 
uh, sounds. And uh, so, so that was one way that I've been able to do it, but it sounds like you're really able to uh, engineer some interesting kind of courses. Part of it is that, you know, I, it took me a long time to get there, though, you know, trying to figure it out. And sound is a difficult thing because, you know, there is a music, there's like a, a jazz and new music program there. And there's Manus School of Music. These are all parts of the new school. And Parsons is the design sort of wing of the new school. And so in terms of the student body, like if it's not a music class and it's not like a sound engineering class or, or film scoring, like what is it? You know, it's hard sometimes to get that, to get the audience for those kinds of classes. So it's part, one thing I did while I was there, one great thing I think about being full-time faculty and well, one of many things is uh, the idea that you're supported to do research, you know, and Prior to that point of really getting into sound, I didn't know what that meant for me, you know, other than my studio practice, like what does research mean when I'm teaching these design classes that are not necessarily connected to what I do? As soon as I started working with these sound classes, it became uh, a really great opportunity to think about uh, opportunities that might be made within the university. So what might it mean to, to bring a greater awareness of sound across disciplines? You know, how might one do that? So I got a grant to do to put together an exhibition and create a, a website with some folks and uh, start like a little research hub that unfortunately languished a bit because unfortunately, like myself, all of the people who are part of that group are incredibly overtaxed. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, you know what that's like. Yes, I'm sure. I do. Yes, yes, definitely. Well, um, we're, we're running on time here, so we should uh, try to wrap things up. And I always like to close these shows with some perspective on the creative life. Uh, I call living and sustaining a creative life, which I got from Sharon Loudon's book of the, the same title. Uh, I, I love that book. If you haven't read it, by the way, it's I haven't. I highly recommend that. And uh, living and sustaining a creative life. So maybe any advice that you would have to those who are set or starting out, in uh, any stage of the career on that on that path? Well, you know, I mean, I think uh, it's funny, actually, having listened to a number of episodes of your show, it's, it's, I always find it fascinating to hear how people answer this question. And, you know, the whole idea of, uh, of a sustainable creative pursuit is, uh, is one that we always struggle with, you know, and uh, the financial part, you know, there's this sort of emotional sustenance, and then there's the financial sustenance. But, Teaching is obviously the way that I'm managing the financial part, which, as I mentioned, too, has all these great um, potential additions of being full-time faculty, which is, you know, research funds and things like that that help kind of fuel my interests. Um, but the teaching is also really helpful for me because, you know, when you have to deliver content to all of these students, you have to really uh, engage in conversation and, and you're bringing content to them in different ways and you want to be new about that. And I think that that helps. You mentioned the idea of curiosity at the beginning and you couldn't uh, ask for anything better than a group of curious students. So to attempt to kind of get other people to be curious, I think helps you know me stay curious as well. My family are huge supporters of my work, which is always good to have, you know, come home and and they're like ready to support any of the crazy ideas I might have and you know uh, all of these residencies they've been great about me tromping off and and doing all of these things and uh, they're great supporters in terms of you know 
curiosity is really where it's at for me. And I think, I think the fact that, uh, because I just happen to be interested in all of these different kinds of things, they have a way of smashing into each other, which makes it very interesting for me. So that idea of things in opposition tends to keep me uh, moving, you know? So the idea of, you know, the language of art versus the language of science or process versus product or, you know, mastery versus the DIY, you know, all of these things end up sort of fueling, fueling my interest to generate new things. Also, you know, just using a sketch things like using a sketchbook it's like a portable studio so for me i'm just when i don't have time to make stuff because you know being a full-time faculty there are times that i'm very busy and it's hard to it's hard to get into the studio and and make stuff and a sketchbook is a studio you carry with you always and so that idea of jotting even if it's just to jot ideas down for later Another thing, you know, Craig mentioned something which I thought was great, which is just this idea of sometimes you're doing stuff not because it's going to go someplace, you know, not because it's going to be put on in a gallery, not because it's even going to generate a work, but but it just kind of keeps your hand in and, and it keeps you sharp. And one of the things I've been doing for a long time now is just, you know, it's not an uncommon practice by any stretches, just using my phone to take pictures of, you know, essentially like found paintings, you know, uh, interesting textures, things that catch my eye. And, you know, the thing I love about that kind of a process is that the more you do it, the more you find yourself looking and the more you find yourself um, reframing the world. And even when I don't have time to do anything else, that sort of keeps me thinking. And, um, you know, I may never do anything with any of those photos, but, but that's not really what matters. Yeah. Terrific, John. Thank you so much for being on the show. Lot, lot of really great information here. Uh, people can find you online. You want to plug your website? Sure. It is uh, net. Fantastic. And they can go there and see all of the many of the works that we've talked about and photos and sounds. And uh, there's so much there. I, I, I mean, I feel like I've just scratched the surface by... Uh, kind of looking at your site, there's your work is so uh, diverse and there's so much of it. So there's a lot there to digest. Great advice. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks a lot, John. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at thatjohnlane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.